Hello there, and welcome to Critics Allowed, a six-part podcast celebrating 10 years of Critics, the online review site of BSEX, the British Society for 18th Century Studies. I'm your host for this episode, Grania O'Hare. The 18th century was the first great age of criticism, and it was in this spirit that the Critics website was founded in 2011 providing entertaining, informative and provocative reviews of events and media that are of interest to scholars of the 18th century. On the critics' site, plays, concerts, operas, exhibitions, films, broadcasts and online resources are all considered in depth by experts in the field. To celebrate this first decade of critics, we have invited former reviewers to perform for us their past reviews, all of which have been handpicked by our current staff of specialist sub-editors. In this episode, we'll be hearing Natasha Simonova's 2017 review of the TV series Black Seals, and Filippo Turkheimer's 2020 review of Purcell, Songs and Dances, an album recorded in 2018 by Les Musiciens de Saint-Julien, François Lazarevich and Tim Mead. Our first review is Natasha Simonova, a fellow and lecturer in English at Exeter College, the University of Oxford. Natasha has published on prose fiction, romance and women's writing and is currently working on a trade book about the 18th century correspondence of the Grey Ladies of Rest Park. You can follow Natasha on Twitter using at Philistella, where she still occasionally demonstrates her affection for black seals. The following review was originally published on 17th of May 2017 and contains some major spoilers. The most important things to know about black seals are the obvious ones. It is a show about pirates and a prequel to Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, perhaps the most influential fictional portrayal of piracy. Its great and unexpected virtue lies in taking these premises to their logical conclusion, that any pirate story is primarily a story about pirate stories and hence about narrative in general and its ability to shape and make sense of reality. Taking its cues from both fiction and history, without being too tightly bound by either, Black Sails ultimately asks us to question the investments that go into making that distinction. The setting is Nassau in 1715, an independent stronghold of the golden age of piracy on the verge of its historical fall and colonial rule. Here, the characters of Stevenson's novel, John Silver, Billy Bones, Captain Flint, mixed with documented figures such as Charles Vane, Jack Rackham, Anne Bonney, Woods Rogers, and Edward Blackbeard Teach. Yet these real pirates are themselves also already fictional, beginning to fade into the myths that will define and misconstrue them. Put down the newspapers and read a book, Rackham instructs a bloodthirsty young fan. A book like Rogers's autobiography, and the 1724 general history of the pirates, on which much of what we know about them is based, offer no more reliable guide. The life of piracy, after all, is referred to as the account, implying narrative as well as reckoning. If the pirate is a category of exclusion, the laws of every civilized nation declare them hostis humani generis, enemies of all mankind, then in asking what piracy means, black sales must necessarily also seek to define its opposite. From our current standpoint and positioned against the violence of the pirates, 
civilization has an obvious appeal. Woods Rogers, who arrives to tame the island at the start of season three, appears to be a reasonable man. Yet it gradually becomes clear that the civilization he champions is one intrinsically dependent on subjugation and its own forms of violence. As the pirates join with Maroon Nation of escaped slaves, the battle for the independence of Nassau grows into a broader war, calling for an end to slavery and colonial rule throughout the New World. It is a sweeping and clearly doomed goal, yet that very sense of doom is itself a function of history. The empire survives in part because we believe its survival to be inevitable, says Flint. It isn't. With alliances forming and shifting, the protagonists of Black Sails are forced to choose between this violent revolution and the temptations of self-interest and more gradual reform. As one of them, herself born into slavery and wishing to inhabit the master's house without becoming a master, argues, you cannot fight civilization from the outside in. It has been winning for 10,000 years. What follows is thus necessarily a tragedy, a story of dreams frustrated, chances lost, betrayals the more painful because they are motivated by love in all of its complex and fragile forms. Yet it is a story that still carries within it the possibility of redemption and unexpected grace. Hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Few of these deeper themes, admittedly, are immediately evident in the eight-episode first season. Co-produced by Michael Bay, Black Sails begins in the tradition of their pay cable hits like HBO's Game of Thrones, a sumptuous festival of brothels, backstabbing, and brutality, all headed by the enigmatic figure of Captain James Flint and his search for a ship filled with Spanish treasure. Flint is the ruthless pirate par excellence, dispatching enemies and wayward friends alike. But there are already hints that he may be more than he seems. There is his unexpected fondness for books, his mysterious connection with a woman named Miranda Barlow, a speech in which he describes his vision for Nassau and his ultimate wish, like Odysseus, to walk inland until his oar is mistaken for a winnowing fan. In season two, our understanding of Flint is deepened through a series of flashbacks exploring his origins while a conversation between him and Silver introduces the idea that villainy is in the eye of the beholder. Flint, so you think that the people of Nassau see me as the villain in this particular story? And you? You see me as the villain here? Silver, I see you as the agent most likely of securing my share of the gold. As long as that remains true, I am not bothered in the least by whatever labels anyone else decides to affix to you. Why? What do you think about it? Flint, I'm sorry? Silver, it bothers you, doesn't it, what they think? With the things you've done, my God, it must be awful being you. A superb performance by Toby Stevens throughout makes clear quite how awful it is. His face is a sneering mask troubled by waves of suppressed anguish, occasionally cracking into violence or short-lived moments of tenderness at once threatening and magnetic, sometimes so obviously exhausted that he begins to resemble the skull on the pirate flag. Flint, we learn, is in fact a fictional character that he has created, named after a ghost story and consuming the man within over the past 10 years. 
Before that, he was a young naval officer named James McGraw, tasked with helping the idealistic Lord Thomas Hamilton solve the pirate problem in the Bahamas. Hamilton's plan for general pardon made him powerful enemies, who got their ammunition from a personal scandal. McGraw's romantic involvement first with Hamilton's wife, Miranda, and then, more significantly for them both, with Hamilton himself. In the fallout, James and Miranda flee to Nassau, while Thomas is confined to a lunatic asylum, where they are later told he kills himself. Presented as a series of flashbacks within flashbacks, the reveal of McGraw and Hamilton's true relationship should really not have been one at all. It follows naturally from the previous interactions between the characters, and makes sense of all of Flint and Miranda's tense exchanges about their past, as well as his single-minded crusade for the island's future. Yet the response from many fans was one of outrage. The showrunners were accused of having ruined a previously badass character, or of sneaking in a bisexual protagonist in the service of political pandering. Recent controversy around Skye's Jamestown has reignited debates about the extent to which historical dramas should reflect the social mores of times in which they are set, rather than our own. Yet there is no such thing as a purely apolitical recourse to historical accuracy. Any attempt to reimagine the past is inflected by the moment in which it occurs. Although debate over Flint's sexuality was often framed in the guise of verisimilitude, the question of whether real pirates engaged in same-sex relationships, they did, is ultimately besides the point. His character, after all, is a fiction, a barely sketched ghost hovering over Stevenson's novel. The fault line lay in what today's viewers wanted from a TV pirate narrative, and what some of them apparently wanted was precisely the persona of Captain Flint. They could accept any atrocity but not this legendary protagonist being defined by his love for another man. The figure of the 18th century pirate, with its inherent combination of violence and billowy shirted camp, thus easily becomes a flashpoint for conceptions of masculinity. Extra textual challenges to Flint's badassery aside, the character most aware of this within the show is Jack Rackham. Physically slight, tending to dandyism and cut-class quips, his face almost permanently bruised from someone punching him. Rackham is obsessed with his name and legacy because he has found it that much harder to emerge from the shadow of more aggressive figures like Vane and Teach. It takes Jack some time to reconcile to the fact that his success is ultimately owed to women. His partner, Anne Bonney, scowling gloriously from under a wide-brimmed hat, and Max, the Creole prostitute turned economic mastermind who becomes her lover, in a complex dynamic that skirts the lines of both conventional love triangle and male fantasy. While black sales may open with pay cable's usual mix of titillation and sexual violence, it ends up showcasing a remarkable range of flawed and multifaceted female characters, whose changing allegiances and moral commitments are crucial to its action. From Anne's blend of vulnerability and rage to Max's caring and ruthless survival, the steadfast but not self-abnegating devotion of Miranda Hamilton, and the clear-eyed leadership of Maudie, the maroon princess whose destiny as Silver's wife, mentioned in a few dismissive lines by Stevenson, will end up being a betrayal of her own ideals. 
Even the trade boss, Eleanor Guthrie, who at first seems like a man's idea of a strong woman. She's young and beautiful. She swears like a sailor. She appears to be in charge, but in practice is oddly ineffectual. She is able to grow into belated self-awareness about her own culpability and constraints. Anne Bonny may be the only one to lead a boarding party, but women's contributions will help to decide the fate of NASA. It is one of Max's employees at the brothel, in fact, who designs the famous Jolly Roger flag to Jack's exacting specifications. As he maintains, we all have the same swords out there. We all have the same guns. But great art has felled empires, and therein lies all the difference. The democratic institutions of piracy mean that such forays into public relations play a much larger role within the plot than one might assume. The source of Captain Flint's power lies not in his cutlass, but his ability to manipulate belief. He meets his map, however, in John Silver, whose prominent role in Treasure Island makes him into a sort of Chekhov's gun hanging over the narrative. Initially an insufferable, fast-talking rogue, Silver transforms almost unrecognizably in the latter seasons, gaining in stature as he loses his leg. The result of an uncharacteristically selfless choice that visibly horrifies him even as he makes it, and which inextricably binds him to both Flint and his crew. Recognizing that Flint is a man who must see himself reflected in others, Silver assumes the perilous role of being his shadow and his mirror, at once his most trusted confidant and his most implacable adversary. Both of them are defined by knowing the power of a story and how to harness it to their own ends, a power that makes them nearly invincible when acting in concert and threatens to tear the world apart when they are opposed. Their interactions when alone are defined by a compelling blend of sincerity and manipulation until it becomes impossible to know where one stops and the other begins. After allowing him deep into his own secrets, Flint comes to realize that Silver, unlike every other major character in Black Sails, is a man completely lacking in backstory, no fulcrum in his past that would explain his present motivations. Silver seems to arise from nowhere, announcing himself as something that he isn't, the ship's cook, just as the action of the first episode begins. Yet as it develops, he is as much acted upon as acting. This is his backstory, forming him into the man that he will become in Treasure Island. Even the legend of Long John Silver is ultimately spun in his absence by Billy Bones, serving his own political purposes. It is Silver, however, who ends up shaping the story's end, even if he does not fully appreciate the consequences. It may be his lack of grounding, his deliberate amputation of his own past, that leaves him as selfish in love as he was out of it. In order to save Maudie's life, he betrays the cause for which she was willing to give it. That the ship carrying her is called the Eurydice underlines his position as a faithless Orpheus. To do so means disposing of Flint and his single-minded determination to continue the war against colonialism, which Silver believes will prove too costly. As they face off on the titular island, Flint pleads with Silver to understand why he cannot give up. In a speech that doubles as a manifesto for the program as a whole, and the freedom in the dark that it finds for marginalized voices. All this will be for nothing. We will have been for nothing. Defined by their histories, distorted to fit into their narratives, 
until all that is left of us is the monsters in the stories that they tell their children. Unwilling to interfere further in the broader narrative, however, Silver finds another way to neutralize the monster in Flynn. She removes him from action by orchestrating his reunion with a secretly alive Thomas Hamilton on a penal plantation in Georgia. It is an act of erasure and healing that is fully in the tradition of early modern romance. The oar becomes a winning hook, the sword a plowshare. As Silver tells Maudie, I did not kill Captain Flint, I unmade him. Captain Flint was born out of a great tragedy. I found a way to reach into the past and undo it. To salvage a happy ending from the jaws of history, black sails must thus turn away from the structural to the personal. Flint may refuse to forgive England or to be forgiven by it, but forgiveness remains possible on the individual level, however hard won. Slavery will continue and spread, but Maudie's own group of maroons is able to survive in freedom. One day she might learn to trust Silver again. Nassau returns to British rule, but it is now being covertly run by Max, with Jack and Anne continuing to sail under the black flag with her blessing. For some reviewers, even this conditional happiness was too much. In a television landscape where prestige is met measured by grimness, the ending of Black Sails was accused of being fan fiction-like in its wish fulfillment. But then, of course, the show is essentially fan fiction in the way that it engages with the canons of Treasure Island and recorded history. Like John Silver, it reaches into the past to rewrite some of its tragedy. And like John Silver, our motivations for wanting to do so are essentially selfish. We cling to the survivors of the wreck because we have grown to care for and define ourselves through them. It is left to Jack Rackham, with all his belief in the power of legacy, to offer a summation. Art must be true in order to transcend, he concludes, but it is subject to a different kind of truth value. A story is true. A story is untrue. As time extends, it matters less and less. The stories we want to believe those are the ones that survive, despite upheaval and transition and progress. Those are the stories that shape history. And then what does it matter if it was true when it was born? In our current historical moment, such an approach to facts has fully demonstrated its dangers. But when applied to fiction and the injustices of the past, it can instead become a strategy of reclamation, a way of ensuring that a different type of story will survive. So, perhaps Flint really was killed on Skeleton Island, or drank himself to death in Savannah, as Stevenson records. Perhaps the Maroon settlement will be retaken, the treaty broken, as so many other treaties signed by colonial powers have been. Perhaps Woods Rogers will find a way to return to power in the Bahamas. Perhaps Max's trade in Nassau will fail. Perhaps Jack and Anne and their new shipmate, Mark Reed, will be captured the very next day to meet the fate that history prescribes for them. Too much sanity may be madness, Maudie tells Flint, quoting another of Black Sails's significant intertexts. And the maddest of all, to see life as it is and not as it should be. Perhaps they're out there still. Our second reviewer for this installment is Filippo Turkheimer. 
Filippo was currently studying voice at the Mozartium University in Salzburg, but at the time of writing was undertaking a master's in music at Oxford University. While he could not perform as much as he would have liked due to COVID, Filippo's interests in singing and early music were exhausted elsewhere, in this case critiquing the singing of others. In the particular case of the review you are about to hear, in examining countertenor Tim Mead's expert performances of Purcell's encyclopedic vocal output, expertly accompanied by Les Musiciens de Saint-Julien, whose refreshing recordings of the composer's instrumental works complete this benchmark album. Filippo Turkheimer's review of Purcell, Songs and Dances, was first published on the 28th of September 2020. It was during the lockdown period that I became aware and subsequently enchanted by the music making of French period ensemble Les Musiciens de Saint-Julien. This was primarily with the result of endless browsing on Spotify, looking for tracks to rejuvenate my historically informed performance or HIP playlist. The group, with scholar and flautist François Lazarevich at the helm, prides itself on an approach to performance which is highly eclectic. Indeed, their appreciation for historical documentation stands vis-à-vis with a blazing desire to improvise and a penchant for folk music, articulated through their approach to rhythm and fascinating choice of instrumentation. This ethos pervades their recording of Henry Purcell's music, where British countertenor Tim Mead joins this ensemble on this thrilling voyage, exploring the composer's diverse output. Despite Purcell's works evidently lauded through the ensemble's robust playing and Mead's mesmerising voice, it is interesting to observe various traditional folk tunes scattered throughout the album. By acknowledging this, among other features, I could not help but understand Lazarevich's enterprise not simply as an exploration of Purcell's music, but of the music which defined this period in England, the very tunes, dance structures and texts which defines this age as a landmark moment in English music. The close-knit musicality of this ensemble is evident right from the album's outset, with Purcell's incidental music for John Dryden's renowned play Amphitryon kicking off this exuberant dance party. Three dance structures, the French minuet and the folk bourré, sandwiching the British hornpipe, which resembles a jig, are immediately presented, establishing the album's intention to inform the listener on popular Baroque structures. As with the other dances on display, the group's imaginative ornamentation, musical shaping and phrasing, and flexible approach toward rhythm, clearly injected with a folk-like vitality, were truly electrifying to experience. Indeed, their performance of the explosive air from The Virtuous Wife, more incidental music on show, best conveys this idiosyncratic performance practice. Here, two recorders seamlessly decorate a brisk and complex melodic line, driven by an exhilarating bass texture, consisting of pizzicato double bass and staccato organ. Exotic woodwind instruments, including recorders, are brought to the fore in this album, demonstrating the ensemble's interest in promoting rare instruments within this repertory. As the group's resident bagpipe player, Lazarevich's performance of the traditional tune Hey Boys, Up Go We, which seamlessly precedes the tenor aria May Her Blessed Example Chaste, from the birthday ode for Queen Mary, with a solo violin covering the voice in this instance, delivers an unusual dimension to this English ditty. A pleasant surprise, nonetheless. Tim Mead's contribution here is breathtaking, 
demonstrating a musicianship that moulds well with the zealous musical quality of the French ensemble. The songs on show here display a broad mix of arias from Purcell's most renowned operas and oratorios. Despite the diversity of moods and contexts, Mead's consistent richness of lyrical display and attention to text is exceptional, resulting in breathtaking and, indeed, benchmark performances of this staple English repertoire. His most memorable contribution, in my opinion, concerns Lazarevich's rendition of Strike the Vial from Purcell's Come Ye Sons of Art, which, when placed against recordings by ensembles closer to home, strikes, excuse the pun, due to its brisker tempo and absence of voice in the ritonello. However, the result is astonishing. With the instrumentalists generating a fiery and vivacious accompaniment, with all their qualities mentioned previously in full force, Mead's vocal prowess blazes even stronger with a performance which injects such vitality into Lazarevich's interpretation. His approach to the more tranquil repertoire in Lazarevich's Purcellian Voyage is equally as gripping. His performance of Fairest Isle, Venus's timeless aria from Purcell's King Arthur appearing at the end of the opera, is beautifully controlled and majestic, wonderfully revealing the moment the king is reassured of unity between the Britons and Saxons. Mead's cool and collected stance did not only impress her, but the solo violin's own flourishes of English cadences in the ritonello were also greatly enjoyed. Finally, Mead here is not excluded from the ensemble's folk endeavours. In fact, his performance of the jovial Scottish ditty, Twas Within a Furlong of Edinburgh Town, is a real gem of this album. Lazarevich's approach to Purcell's music certainly provokes the ear, and, like so many of his other projects, not forgetting his unconventional take on Vivaldi's Le Quattro Stagioni, Les Musiciens de Saint-Julien seem to thrive from toying with repertoire considered sacrosanct among audiences today. However, performance practice notwithstanding, one cannot deny that their playing is some of the most robust and mesmerising out there on the market today. The players exude such confidence in their approach to virtuosic lines, rhythm and ornamentation, demonstrating an admirable authority upon this repertoire. Particular mention must go to the group's exquisite continuous section. Harpsichordist Justin Taylor and organist Marie Van Rijn for grounding these performances with creative and highly charged figured bass realisations. When I first encountered this album, I almost felt that, at points, the constant folk-like tinge on pieces was a little repetitive and sometimes exhausting to hear, especially toward the end of the disc. However, by inserting tranquil numbers, such as the G minor pavan, for strings and continuing, the rather frolic nature of this programme was certainly calmed down. Famed for its unceasing and unrelenting chain of suspensions, the ensemble momentarily set aside their improvisation and folk tendencies to approach this work with such delicacy, revering the composer's idiosyncratic harmonic language and luscious melodic lines. I look forward to Lazarevich's next project with bated breath. Thank you very much for listening to this instalment of Critics Aloud. 
If you'd like to read the reviews featured here in their original formats, or indeed explore more reviews by the same author, or any of our reviews, you can find them all at our website, bsex.org.uk forward slash critics reviews. And remember, at bsex, we spell critics with a K, so it's C-R-I-T-I-C-K-S. If you'd like to write to us, or you have a suggestion for something you'd like us to review, please do get in touch with one of our sub-editors. Our sub-editors are Granier O'Hare for Media... So that includes film, TV, podcasts, and so on. Brianna Robertson-Kirkland for music. Miriam Al-Jamil for fine and decorative art. And Katie Ask for theatre. You can contact any of us at any time via the B6 Critics website, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. If you're not already a member of B6, but are interested in finding out more about joining our society, visit bsex.org.uk. Membership includes a subscription to our society's quarterly journal, the highly regarded, world-renowned, journal for 18th century studies as well as an invitation to our annual conference and access to a wide range of events funding and support for 18th century scholars at every career level if you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more please let us know by leaving a review wherever you listen to this podcast or by tweeting us at bsex critics this episode was edited and produced by adam james smith and Brianna robertson kirkland in association with the British Society for 18th Century Studies, and it was hosted by Grania O'Hare. Join us again next month, but for now, goodbye. Yeah.